And I want you to open your Bible to the book of Revelation at the very back, Revelation chapter 21. And I want to do a bit of a review tonight on something that I'll title, What We Must Overcome. If we're going to call ourselves overcomers, as the Bible declares us to be, then we should be overcomers. Overcome. Not be overcome, not draw back and give up during the battle, but to press on, press in, and pursue and triumph in Christ. That's what we're designed to do. We're more than conquerors through Christ, are we not? And if we are, then we prove that. We show that. That's the way we live. Now, Revelation chapter 21, verse 7 and 8. There's something you have to think about here. These are pretty thought-provoking words. He that overcometh. It doesn't say you just do, but he that does shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now that is there to put a little bit of sobriety in our hearts and in our lives. See, we must overcome, and the things that overcome us so often are the things he mentions. Average, normal, everyday temptations. For some of us, some of these things are not temptations at all. For other people, they are difficult. But these are things that you must face in this life, to some degree or another, to some form or another, and you have to overcome it. God didn't call us to just sit around and watch the world turn. He called us to be in the world as his people and not be ruled by anything in our lives but him. And anything that tries to take over your life, you have to overcome it because he said, if we don't, we do not inherit all things. Would you agree with that? You have to agree with that. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. Well, the reverse is true. If overcomers inherit all things, then those who do not overcome will not inherit anything. And if you're faltering tonight or you maybe admit that you're weak in a lot of ways and you're not doing so well in Christianity and you're not strong like you know you should be, then the message is, and you better tighten up. There's a reason Paul speaks about the Christian life being lived out with fear and trembling, which means it's not easy. I mean, the words of God put to practice in this world is not convenient. It's not easy at all. In fact, you're quite a minority. And you, if you listen to the news much or you read much, you'll find more and more, especially if you've lived for a while, that Christianity is not so highly thought of anymore. It's beginning to pose a problem to the liberals in this world who want to do things without conviction and without a moral barometer. And the only people that oppose that are mainly Christians who do have convictions. And when those convictions become your life and they become a stand that you take, then you become a problem. I'm not sure that all pulpits try to instill in all their believers that, you know, we must live in a certain way. I think it's more we should. It's the right way to do. But, you know, on the other hand, God, and you start talking that way, you become liberal. But when you say we must obey God, for example, we must. Well, there's no alternative, no option. We must obey God. Because if we don't obey God, we cannot overcome. Because the victory that overcomes the world is even our faith. To have faith is to obey God. And God's great complaint, like in the book of Jeremiah, I think he uses the word obey more than any other book in the Bible. I think it does. It's either the first or second. And the reason God had such a complaint against his people is that though they had ears to hear and though they had a clear picture through the types and of the offerings, they still would not obey God. They wanted something else. And when they were opposed by a prophet like Jeremiah, they hated him for it. He told them the truth. He told them the absolute truth. Left nothing out, and they literally hated him. They despised him. 
And he overcame. The rest of them didn't, but he did. He overcame and therefore. Now, let's look at this list because these are things, again, I said we all have to deal with, we all have to face, some of us in a different degree than others do. But look at the first one, the fearful in verse 8. But the fearful. But is contrasted to those who overcome. But those who don't are usually characterized like this. They're fearful. There's a lot of things in life to be afraid of. Children grow up being afraid of the dark, of storms, of noises. Sometimes those fears carry into your adult life all your life. Driving in snow or being alone, uh, having to deal with decisions in the house or the home or your life or your business. What if you don't make the right decision? What if you fail? You could lose everything and then what are you going to... And then what would everybody think? And you're afraid of opinions. And there's just so many things that, that we cave into that we're just fearful of. And, and we're warned here that you can't, you can't be fearful. The wisdom we all need comes from God and is freely offered to all of us. He said in James chapter 1, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives. Sometimes he gives, sometimes he doesn't. No, he said he gives to all men liberally that's a given but you're going to ask you got to ask in faith and so forth people are often fearful and don't know what to do don't know who to talk to they find themselves talking to their friends and neighbors who have the same fears and those fears get rooted deeper and deeper in your life and it just becomes you that's just the way you are you're somewhat of a fearful person you don't want your children to play outside you know, there's so many things that, you know, don't want to play on the playground. They might fall and they might hurt themselves. I got news for you. If you have stairs in your house, they will fall down. I trust you. That's a given. And they'll go thumpity thump. I remember the night one of my boys fell out of the top bunk. I was in the other room studying. I heard this crashing. I knew what it was. So I sat there and thought, okay, now, in Jesus' name, before I get up and go in there, everything's going to be fine. They just kind of walk in there, and, you know, they're rubbing their eyes, have to go to the bathroom. And uh, they were all right. Didn't even know they fell out of bed. You know, we don't want them to do that. They might get hurt. We don't want to go there. It might not work. Well, that, that tire might get flatter. There's so many things that we verbalize our fears, and we, that's how we do it. We talk about it. We discuss our fears because that's what's in our heart. And yet we come to God, and we're told us to fear thou not. Why? I'm with you. Be not dismayed, bewildered, beside yourself, for I am with you. I'm your God. That's what he said. Our 91st Psalm says this, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, no evil shall befall you, no plague will come nigh your dwelling, and concerning you he will give charge to his angels to keep you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. That's what you're scared of. Well, God will protect you. Now, people do dash their foot against a stone. It's not because they're believing God. They can read that verse, but you have to use your faith. There's a dwelling in the secret place of the Most High, learning what he wants and being willing to live on his terms that brings all these things to light. That That's the way that they should be. We're warned, for example, about being fearful in Hebrews chapter 10. You know, the just shall live by faith at the end of that chapter. The just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, and there's one of the great reasons we draw back is fear. We draw back from speaking what we know is right because of what somebody might say to us or about us. We're afraid of confrontation, and I, nobody likes confrontation, but you sometimes you can't avoid it. You just have to say what you believe and let things take their course. But he said, if you walk by faith, he said that we don't look back and we don't draw back because if you do draw back, God says in verse 39 of Hebrews 10, he said, my soul will have no pleasure in you. Well, that defeats the whole reason we're here. If we're only here to listen but not to do, then, then how can he have pleasure in us? We live by faith. Now, if you're afraid to, oh, you've looked at others in the past and all oh, that, oh, I don't know about that. Okay, then if you want to draw back, that's your choice. 
because we all live by choices, and that was yours. But if you draw back out of fear, then the Bible says you draw back to perdition. I'm not trying to make this hard and threatening. I'm just trying to make it clear. We draw back to perdition or destruction because God says my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Hey, when you held your hand up at that meeting or asked God to save you in your mama's lap or went forward at the revival, uh, you signed up for the long haul. It's not a 100-yard dash. It's a marathon. It's not easy. It wasn't intended to be easy. Most who sign up drop out on the way. It's too hot, too cold, too far, too slow. You're too young, too old. And they just don't want to put up with all the effort that you have to give. God requires everything, and without everything, it just isn't going to work. And the reason we draw back, and I believe this, is because people are fearful. And they cower and they shrink because they're afraid of the consequences if they walk with God his way. This might cost me, and I trust me, it does. It cost you a lot of friendships, but they really weren't friends that you lost. It's the friends you have now that are truly friends. Amen. The ones in the big house or in the church house. Second thing in verse 8, not only the fearful, he said, but the unbelieving. We just spoke about faith. But I believe here the, the reference is more to scoffers and critics and anti-Bible skeptics, doubters like that. Oh, that, oh, that bunch. Of, I think those are the kind of people he's talking to more than anything else. We all have our moments of doubt, even as we all have our moments of fear. We don't live fearful. We deal with it. There's people who don't fear, who don't deal with it. They just resign themselves to it. That's fearful. There are those who have moments of unbelief. We've all had it. Everybody has had a moment where you didn't do well. But you didn't quit. You start again because you're not given to not doing well. You're not given to doubting. It really bothers you if you doubt. I mean, it's like, oh, God, how can I do that? So you get up and start over. But then there are those who just, they're not going to believe all that stuff. The word unbelief is connected to the word faith. In fact, there's the word faith in a technical sense means willing to be persuaded. God speaks, you're willing to be persuaded to do. Not just to, just to understand it or just say, yeah, I, I mentally agree with that. It means to not only mentally agree with it, but to be willing to live like that, obey. And you are, you are given to accepting that and doing that. Now, unbelief, you put an A in front of the word, for Greek word for believe, P-E-I-T-H-O. It's not easy for me to pronounce, pytheo. You put an A in front of it, and it means negative meaning. Where once it says willing to be persuaded, it now means refusal to be persuaded or unpersuasible. See, Abraham was persuaded. A doubter is unpersuaded. Two people sit in the same church. One person says, you know, I believe that. I, that's got to be right. I'm going to, that is right. My heart has embraced that. Yes. Somebody else says, well, I don't get all caught up in that. I mean, where, who does it work for? Let's judge God on people, not on his word. Let's judge how big and good God is on who's talked like this and it's worked for. I'll believe it. I see it in you. No. I believe it because the Bible says it. That's the way we live. That's the way we're supposed to live, and that's the way God wants us to live. What Jesus told Peter, he said, the devil has desired you, Peter, that he might sift you as wheat. What did Jesus pray for? He said, I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith fail not. That's the issue in a battle, in a warfare, in life. Are you willing to live like to you God is true? That he is absolute master of my destiny and he watches over his word to perform it. He cannot fail. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is impossible for God. I'm aligning myself with him and I'm willing to trust him. Though I haven't seen it happen yet, I don't feel any better yet. I believe it because he said it and I'm going to count on him to do it. This is when fear usually rises up and says, yeah, but what if it doesn't work? 
What if God doesn't want to do this? What if you got sin somewhere in your life and you don't know it and it doesn't work? Now what are you going to do? I think God realizes that his word comes to us with, with a condition that we have to believe it. Like James 1, if you ask wisdom, God gives, doesn't he? Then he goes on to say the next verse, but let him ask in faith without doubting. If you doubt, you don't receive anything from God. Anything is a lot. Anything includes a whole bunch. But on the other hand, you turn it around. If you do believe, then anything is possible. But the Bible teaches us that. So the devil works over time to get us to doubt and to turn away and be afraid and, and not have the victory. I think a whole lot of people's problem today with believing God is, is a pulpit problem. I don't say there he goes again, because I do believe this. I believe that if faith is not taught, if people are not encouraged to believe and not be afraid, they're going to resign themselves to whatever comes along in their life and really not know how to fight it because it takes faith to fight. And if it doesn't work for this, it may not work for that either. So we, you know, we just sort of become church members and we exchange the walk of faith for church goodness, busyness, giving, doing, uh, making it bigger and better and brighter and then getting really involved and being promoted and all of that kind of a system. Never walking by faith, never trusting God, just busy. And if that's propagated or preached over, over pulpits, that's what people see God as wanting. He just wants us to be busy. And nobody can overcome all the time, the preacher might say. I mean, after all, you're human. You're, you're not perfect. You won't be perfect in this life, and therefore you can't always win your battles. Well, that ain't what the Bible teaches. But that's a license for people to quit trying. And so unbelief becomes, begins to factor in there. And that's Revelation 21 and, and verse 8. Another thing he goes on to say in Revelation 21 and verse 8 is the abominable. Now, what in the world is abominable? Is that that hairy thing that runs through the woods, that uh, Sasquatch or snowman? No. Let me give you Barnes Notes. Barnes Notes is a good commentary. And this is how he describes the word abominable as to what it means. It means to excite disgust. Disgusting. To feel disgust at. To abhor. It's those who defile themselves with sin, a sinful lifestyle, and justify it. By saying little things like, well, nobody's perfect. You know, you're out drinking and having a big time at the party and getting a little bit tanked up and having a good time and doing a little stuff you shouldn't do or a lot of stuff you shouldn't do and the words you speak and the vulgarity that goes with that lifestyle. And somebody said, well, you know, that's sin. They said, give me a break, man. Nobody's perfect. I mean, is it, is it wrong to have a little fun? I mean, come on. I mean, you like to have fun by sitting in a dark room praying. I like to have fun. I like to go to the racetrack and, and bet and try to make money and go to the parties and have a big time. But I said, well, that's not the way Christians should live. That's not the way we're given to live. We used to live that way. We were once like that, Paul says, but now you are. You're citizens of the kingdom of God, and your life should reflect it. That's the way we should live. So those who want to justify their sinful lifestyle, their practice of not doing what God said and justify it, it's an abominable. It's abominable. It's those people who don't want to do it God's way but have their own way of doing it. Sometimes kids will say, you know, well, everybody's doing it. Well, everybody else does it. They want a tattoo, for example. Yeah, they want some big racy-looking devilish looking thing tattooed on their skin. Now y'all need a tattoo like I need to be an astronaut. <laughs> Even the book of Leviticus tells us that we're not to put markings on our body. 
We're not to mark our body like that. That's what the heathens did. That makes as much sense to me as a man wearing earrings. Girls wear earrings. Men don't. There's a type of man that does. Might as well wear a dress. You're going to do that. Shave your legs. Let your hair grow. Get you some cute little curls. You're living in a time which people think like that. See, my generation laughs their heads off at this stuff. Boys running around with their pants showing, well, at least their underwear. And like that's somehow to be cool. I think that's the most ignorant looking dress I have ever imagined in my life. I think it's ignorant. I do. I think it's total corrupt ignorance. Ignorance graduated from some university of ignorance with A's and B's. I watched a bunch of people out there that I can't see get mad because their kids have earrings or a tattoo, and now they're mad at me because I don't like it. That's my business. If you like them, get you some more of them. <laughs> I just don't think, it's, I don't think it's right for Christians to have any of that stuff. I think, to me, it borders on the abominable. But listen to me, all of you. All this coloring your skin and painting yourself, you just want attention. You just want attention. And you write something bad on your arm and somebody can't read it and they're looking at you, read, then you get mad because they're staring at you. Well, they're trying to read what that nasty thing was you wrote on your arm. Let me say all of this is my opinion. I, I have some pretty good ones, but I just don't think that's the right way for a young man or a young lady to be. You know, girls don't need tattoos. Or have diamond studs in your forehead or in your nose or your toes or wherever you put them. For a Christian, I just don't think that's right. Now, you want to justify that? There's lots of justifications for stuff. Well, you know, who are you to tell me what to do? That's one. But who said your interpretation is right? That's another one. That gives you a license as far as you're concerned to do it your own way. And I think that attitude I just described is an abomination. Turn to Luke 16. Luke 16 and verse 15. Here's another abomination. We call it religious pride. Religious pride. Luke 16, the 14th verse said, And the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things, and they derided him. They didn't want to agree with him. These are the abominable who have this attitude. They don't want what he said. They don't want the Bible to be true. They don't want it to be that narrow. And he said unto them, you are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed amongst men is what? Abomination in the sight of God. That whichever you're proud of and strutting your stuff with, that you like people to notice, admire, or look up to, or some way think you're cool, God says that is an abomination to God, whether you're in the church or out of the church. It's an abomination to God. So I think that's just something that we ought to, to be aware of. Like go on back to the other side of your Bible again, Titus chapter 1. Look at verse 16. I think this is pretty common today also. They profess that they know God. Does your Bible say that? They profess that they know God because they go to church or they read a, something one time and now they're religious experts. But they profess they know God. But, but what? But in works, in how they live and in what they do. The Bible says they deny him being three things, being abominable, disobedient, that's our faith word again, anti-faith, unpersuasible, being abominable, disobedient, and unto every good work, reprobate. The word could also be translated rejected. I don't care what you did, it's no good. All our works become filthy rags. 
absolutely worthless. So he said, they profess themselves to be Christians. They profess to know God, but the way they live, the way they act, the way they handle their affairs and live in this life is in direct opposition to God. They're abominable. They're unbelieving or unpersuasible, disobedient here, and in every good work, reprobate. Go back to Revelation 21. A fourth thing it says as a characteristic that of this age that we have to overcome is murderers. Murderers. There's lots of ways you could describe murder. Actually, the world usually describes it only one way, and that's taking somebody's life, whether by intention or didn't really mean it to. But when you begin to talk about murder, you're talking about, again, terminating somebody's life. But murder here as a Christian, for us, the way we're to see it, is not just the act of murder, but the attitude of murder. Just the attitude. Now, we could say, you could say to God, well, that's not fair. I didn't do it. Well, this is what God holds us to. This is how pure and fine God's line is for us to live. If you're angry in your heart in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, if you're angry in your heart with your brother, those are the conditions that lead to getting even or revenge or taking out whatever you want to take out on somebody. Sometimes you do it a little extreme, somebody dies. Sometimes they just get hurt real bad and this and that. But sometimes they, they actually die. It was murder based on anger and revenge. Sometimes it's based on nothing more than unforgiveness. Somebody said something to you you've never forgotten. Somebody slandered your mother, your father, or you, or your children, and it so got a hold of you that you could not get over it, and you were mad and angry, and you had a chance. You hurt somebody, or you wanted to hurt somebody, or today pay to get see somebody get hurt. That's murder. We have no right to take somebody's life like that. It has to do a lot of time with your attitude and your feelings. You got a feeling against somebody and you want to get even. But murder can go a step further than that. Today we would call abortion murder. I would. I would. I would call abortion murder. And yet today, more and more, it's in the news so much and it's talked about so much and it's become an accepted practice to lie. It's not to me. I think over 50, I've got it in my office, 50 plus million infants have been killed at the hands of some abortionist since 1973. 50 some million people. You know how many people that is? You put all the major cities together, Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, Atlanta, that's more than all of them. Well, not quite all of them, but about three of them. That's how many people have been just murdered because a mother hated her fetus, her unborn child. Why did she hate it? Because of the dread of what she knew she would have to do in her responsibility to a human being, what she'd have to change her life, that baby's going to change her body, is going to change her routine. She's more interested in herself and having fun and dancing and carrying on and than being responsible. She hates the idea that she's got to do this and she don't want to get drugged down with some kid. So this convenient today. The government loves it. The, our government's promoted it for years. It still does. The nurse at school cannot give your child an aspirin, but they can... Well, I, I better stay away from all of that. It's just that we live in a time that is, again, I grew up in the 50s when I was a teenager in the 50s. That's Truman and Eisenhower, in case you're trying to figure who the presidents were. And it was a whole lot different then than it is now. Standards were so different than they are now. And all these changes, I remember in the 60s when I was teaching school in Raceland, Kentucky, and these 
Beatles and hippies started, and I, I couldn't believe that the police would allow stuff like that on the street. Beatles and hippies, but they got to be so many of them that they just let them go, and now they can't stop it. And those Beatles and hippies became presidents and senators, heads of corporations. That attitude, they might have cut their hair and shaved, but that attitude took them right into those office places. And we live in a time, it's unlike any time in history, but a time the Bible prophesied would come. Men would be lovers of their own self, be haters of God, and so on and so on and so forth. And we're living in a time like that. And abortion today is not considered murder. It's just in the news today. Coming to church about some doctor somewhere was being charged with, I don't know how many counts of murder, that babies were born alive, born, I mean, kicking and moving, and they terminated their lives. There has to be some kind of a, of a monster attitude in these people, cold calculated inhuman attitude. How can you do that? But the Bible promises and predicts and tells us that one of the end time signs is without, without affection, without normal affections. The word for in, in that verse in Timothy has to do with family affection, without family love, without concern or care for your children. Look at how many abandoned children there are in the world. It's, I mean, this prophetically is coming to pass. But we hear it so much, we don't grieve over it. It doesn't really bother us. I'm saying us editorially. I'm sure it bothers you. I hope it does. There's just so many things that, you know, I don't want this in Shelby County. I mean, I don't want this in this county. There's things I pray for that won't be in this county. I pray that every drug dealer will get caught. I pray that everybody who is who is, is abusing people, will all be caught. I do. I don't want that in, in my backyard. And if Jesus said, what things have you desire when you pray, believe, then I can pray about that. I don't want an abortion clinic in Shelbyville. I think that is one of the most incredibly ugly things that's ever happened to any country at any time in history is allowing abortion. And it was voted okay by the government of the United States. And I think the clock began ticking on our nation. It's just a matter of time, folks. You can't live this deep in sin without God judging it. And I think he started judging. I just don't think the people have gotten the message, but I think the judgment has started. It's going to happen. Go back to the left a little bit there to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15. Your Bible says, whoever hateth his brother is a what? Is a murderer. Well, I started with that. It's an attitude. An attitude of ill will towards your brother. Historically, at least from my understanding of it, historically churches have been full of people that don't like each other. Sometimes you find that's very rare. The church I grew up in was like that. When we got saved, when salvation came to Christian church, uh, it came to a showdown, which is called church split. A church split is not a nice thing. People don't say, well, okay, thank you. The church is now yours, and we're going to go somewhere else. God bless all of you. They don't say that. It's just a, it's a time of difficulty. It really is because you cannot compromise your convictions. A conviction was intended by God to be a God-ordered belief. A preference, you'll change. A conviction, you can't. If you're really convicted about something, you live that way. And when people don't want to live by the standards you've set that you think everybody ought to live, live by and you get angry, well, the condition that's in your heart and the ill feeling you have towards somebody else is what often can lead, if the conditions are right, to murder. And it shouldn't be like that. And I think unforgiveness is that way also. Let's go back to Revelation 21.8. The other one is whoremongers. Now, that's a difficult word to deal with. I mean, and some of these words are, are, are pretty difficult. That's a difficult word. I understand it. I'm not afraid of it. God put it in there not for us to run from it and avoid. 
but it's still not a word you like to just deal with all the time. But it also means fornication. Any of you have a translation that says fornication? Okay, let me use the word fornication. Fornication has to do with all forms of sexual uncleanness. Any form. Married, unmarried, male, male, female, female, male, female. Anything that is unclean, improper against the natural use of the body is unclean. And it would be, it come under to me the definition of fornication. It can be actual, it can be mental. A man can be described as an adulterer because of what he's thinking, just like you can be a murderer if you think it. Anger. Didn't Jesus say, whoso looketh upon a woman to lust after her? What's, what has he done in the eyes of God? He has committed adultery with her in his heart. I think every generation has tried to exploit women since there's been a TV set and to try to get women without morals, without convictions, who only want money, who have covetous, frivolous hearts, to try to get them to reveal their body, their body parts, dress very scantily, whatever they can, in order for the powers of darkness, which they would never define, to exploit lust because the devil knows that God will judge it. And styles come along, styles which exploit the human body, exploit certain parts of it. And a lot of young ladies and older ladies know that they get attention. People notice you. They admire the fact that, you know, you're, you're 80 years old and you look 60. I ain't figured that one out yet. Or you're 65 years old, she doesn't look a day over 40. Well, the reason they want to look 40 is to, so they'd be admired. And to, and to look 40, you've got to have that 40-ish figure, so they work on that. You know, you tighten up this thing that hangs under your chin and tighten this stuff up under your eyes and you wad all that up and kind of wear this. It holds better, and, and you go out and you start walking around. And all listen, what happens is men notice your body, and they lust because... You have enticed them. You say, well, I don't think I meant to. I think you might have done it. I'm talking about God, purity, us. We shall be called his people. He shall be our God. You don't do this and make it to heaven. I mean, you got to make some big decisions here. God didn't save his lovely young ladies. He did not save us to walk around as a sex idol or a sex pot to see how many boys can get in trouble looking at you. Because if you think it, you've done it. That's what God said. How many people do you suppose in Christianity would agree with that? You say, well, it says it, it, says it right here. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, it says it right there. Well, that's not what it means. What does it mean? Well, it just, that's, yeah, it's, yeah, it, it doesn't mean that. So the next thing you know, though the Bible says that, maybe from a pulpit. Somebody said, well, while it says that, what it really is referencing here is that there are men who have a problem and they would lust after somebody's grandmother. They're just so out of whack. Well, we probably have that problem too in our society. I never cease to be amazed. Maybe I am older than I think I am. I don't think I am. I think I'm still spry enough to say all this. That I've never seen such admiration for uncleanness in my life. I mean, we want to defend everything that's wrong and condemn what's right. We want our daughters to grow up with moral barometers in the school and the government and textbooks doing everything it can to corrupt them. Now, thank God for homeschool. And thank God for those who in public schools have a good moral barometer and they're not affected by all of this stuff in the world. But do you realize there is a devil who rules in this world? 
It's called under the power of darkness. And the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whoever he can so that he can corrupt them and destroy them. Well, this is part of what he does, and this is the way he does it. Look at the instance of sodomy in the world. Now, I'm not going to define that because there's some younger ones here, but boy, you Google it up and it's there. But look at the incidence of uncleanness in our world. Unclean. Men marrying men. Women marrying women. Men marrying men. Now, who ever heard such a dumb thing as that? That is the dumbest thing. Uh, there's, I'm talking about a lot of dumb things tonight, but that's one of the dumber ones. That's a secondary degree. That's majored in that at the big university on, on majored in, in dumb. That's what you get. A man marrying a man. A woman marrying a woman. That ain't the way it started out. Adam and Steve. It wasn't Adam and Steve. It was Adam and Eve. Men don't marry men. Women don't marry women. They say, well, states allow. I don't care what the states, delegates allow. It's not right. And the reason it's not right is because the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, says it's not right. It's all I got. That's all I got to go on in my life right there. Only thing I have to justify my life or to be condemned in my life is this book. And it doesn't say any, read Romans chapter one, men with men doing things that are unnatural. God calls it an abomination. But, you know, men can fornicate and they can have these kind of thoughts about each other. Men can lust after men. Don't you think they can? It's gotten so bad that dumb has got another degree added to it. It's called adoption. Adam and Steve adopting a little boy or a little girl. And there's a time, trust me with this one too, there's a time coming. We're going to weep about all of this because the full weight of it is going to, be, it's going to fall on Christian people about how God is looking at a very ugly world. And Christians are standing there wondering what's wrong with it. And there's nothing right about it. It's sexual uncleanness. It's lusting and having this and having that and anything that manipulates lust and anything that incites it, that's part of it. Go back to Revelation 21. Another one, sorcerers. All sorcerers and sorcerers. Now, sorcerer, the Greek word for sorcerer is pharmakous. Pharmacus has to do with drugs, potions, or spells. The word also implies an enchanter with drugs. Now, one side of this word, in a drug-infested society in which people will die and kill for a pill or a drug or a potion or a powder that will make them feel different for a little while and they're willing to terminate somebody's life in order to get money or to get that drug. Now that's pretty bad that a human body can live for, only live for a high. And when it doesn't have that high, when it doesn't have that potion in their body, they go bananas, they go bonkers. And we're living in a time in which that's happening. I remember once on one of those TV programs, like a 2020, exposing something. They were showing kids in school that were getting their parents prescription drugs and trading them at school and taking them. And I think, do you even know what you're taking? No. My mother, when she was dying, her doctor gave her Oxycontin. Now, I don't remember a lot of names of drugs. I remember that one because she went out into space on that. And I found out after her death, and I, I did the wrong thing. I didn't know any better, but I had a whole vial of that stuff and put it down the sink 
and poured water in it, put it into the water system, but I hope it got diluted before the whole town went crazy. I should have buried her or something, but anyway, I, I put a bunch of Oxycontin in the sewage system. I guess he gave her this for pain. I didn't notice she was in that much pain, but after about three or four days of taking that, she began to be very unusual, difficult. Wanted to go out and walk up and down the street, and I said, try to, no, Mom, you can't do that. And my mother, so we started struggling there at the door, and she started yelling for Bonnie to come and help her. And I think, Mom, you hate me. You hate me. Don't say that. I'm your son. You won't let me go. You hate me. I mean, that's what drugs do to people. See, that wasn't my mother. It was her body. But whatever was in her, driving her, trying to destroy her or make a fool out of her was the devil. And so behind all that stuff is the devil. Now, I do believe this. I do believe that there are useful and good reasons for things that if people don't have, they will die. Or they can't endure the pain. There are some people who can only live if they take a certain kind of a drug. And they can't just jump into this all of a sudden and stop taking it. It'll take a while. But I'm not saying, and I used to, but I'm not saying today that just because it's a drug that it's witchcraft for us because not all drugs affect people like that. I don't even know that if people take an aspirin to get rid of a headache. I don't think they swallowed the devil. But I do think that we have something better. I mean, I'm not going to say, oh, no, you can't. I'm just saying, look, you can take that if you want to. That's your choice. But we have something better. Now, they may, ne may have never been taught because maybe in the pulpit, the person who's in the pulpit never had been there himself. And you're not going to go any further than the preacher is, mostly in churches. That's why you're here. Because you couldn't go any further than you, wanted, than you were before you came here. There's a type of sorcery which has to do with, with drug and the effect of drugs and drugs that, that destroy and, and, and twist people's lives. And there is a way that sorcery is used, and it has to do with witchcraft, demonic things. Everything from horoscopes and hypnosis, clairvoyance, fortune tellers, kids play with Ouija boards, seeking information or direction about tomorrow from something other than God. That's also a form of idolatry. Now, if you don't know that, then you were innocent, but you're still going to be, you're going to, have to pay for it. The people that are going to pay the hardest are the preachers who didn't warn the people. Are you all still with me? Amen. The people that will pay the hardest are those who taught and did not teach. They liked the teaching. They liked the attention, whatever they got, money, whatever they got. But they denied the Lord that bought them in a lot of key areas because they knew it wasn't popular to teach that. The people never were equipped to handle that, defend themselves against that, or fight that good fight of faith because they didn't have any weapons. What a shame, what an absolute shame that is. But sorcery, sorcery is something that you need that quickening work of the Holy Spirit to warn you against. Let me tell all of you, you know, Drugs are for those that need them. Amen. But for Christians, we have a gospel. The gospel. And that'll work. And if you've come to a time in your life where, you know, I, okay, you might do that for a moment, but you'll get over it, get away from it. And get yourself, I don't want to condemn anybody because nobody in here has always done everything right. And you may not be doing something right now. But get your eyes open, get your heart right, engage the Lord, and let him deal with you because out of that, faith comes, and you'll be able to trust him and not be afraid. Back to Revelation 21 and verse 8. Number 7 is idolatries. God wants your devotion. God wants your prime time, your feeling, your attitude, he wants you to give to him yourself and base everything else in your life on what pleases him. We call it devotion and loyalty to God. 
Now, when you give that devotion or loyalty to somebody else besides God, that other thing or that somebody else or that other something becomes your idol. It's what gets your time, gets your thoughts, gets your affections. For some people, it's their workaholics. It's not wrong to work hard. We should. We should do our best. But there are some people who live to be successful. They'll cut corners. They'll miss church. Whatever they have to do, they'll build something, admire it, get it fixed up because, boy, this is, what, this is their pride and joy. This is what they're really committed their lives to. It's what their devotion is for and to. And so many times it's all about money. And as Jesus said, the love of money is what? It's the root of all evil. Because the pursuit of money, because of something that you, you're giving yourself to and money's behind it, it becomes covetous. Now, I want to show you two or three things about covetous before we end this with our next one. Ephesians 5. Would you look in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3? Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 5. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Let me say this. There's nothing wrong with success. The Bible teaches it. There's nothing wrong with prospering and doing well. The Bible teaches it. There's nothing wrong with you being the recipient of a blessing which is Mashed down, pressed down, running over uh, more than you could ever need, more than you need. There's nothing wrong with that. There is always something wrong with getting that the wrong way. Again, money is not bad in and of itself, but when you begin to love it, you begin to honor it, you devote yourself to it, it becomes your motivator, and then it becomes sin. It becomes evil. And nothing that is gained by it well, like Jesus said, your life does not consist in the abundance of things that you have. You can't take any of it with you. And when you die, that stuff stays here. And because it was cut out of the forest, it eventually will rot and go back to the dirt. It's really nothing. But you, your life, our lives are eternal. We will live forever, either in heaven or in hell. But we're going to live. We're not going to die. We're going to die naturally, but there's another life after this one. But idolatrous. Look at Colossians 3 and verse 5 where he says something very similar. Two books over to the right, Colossians 3, verse 5. He says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil, concupiscence, and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. You can find that in 1 Timothy 6, 17 about charge those that are rich in this world not to be heady or high-minded. You'll find it also in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Covetousness is a, is a terrible master because covetousness teaches you how to justify your lifestyle. Well, I, I'm just going to do this. You know, I got a few weeks I got to do this and I can't be in church, but I'll... And it's not like you can't miss church on occasion because something comes up. You know that, and I know that. We're not that legalistic. But when you make it your pursuit, I would rather be making $500 tonight working than I would be in church. I don't care what membership means and participation and, and once or twice a week hearing the word, that's the only thing we have. And the time the anointing comes is usually in the meeting more so than on a tape. So... I don't need that because I'm going to make some money tonight. I'm not saying everybody has that attitude. There are people that do. And it begins to master you. The Lord of your life is money. All your decisions are based on money. Remember, a man told me one time, he said, well, if you buy that, it won't be worth much next year. And I remember saying, I'm not buying it because it's worth anything next year. I'm buying it because I want it this year. I like it right now. 
Well, they lose a lot of value. They might. They probably do. But you know what? I didn't have much when I started, and I have enough now to get that. And when that's gone, and I've en richly enjoyed all things, I'll get something else. Well, that doesn't seem very smart to me. Well, it, it probably doesn't because profit margins are not my motivation. It just didn't. I don't believe in being foolish. I don't believe in seeing how dumb I can be with a nickel. But I do believe that the nickels are here for one reason, not only to pay our bills and to support the kingdom, but so that we might enjoy the things in this world. They usually cost something. I mean, the last time I went into Lowe's, they, they charged me for something. They didn't say, oh, you're a Christian, you can have it. So there's nothing wrong with having things. It's wrong for things to have you. I guarantee there's a lot of people who wish that they could give more to, to hurting and poor people because that's a blessing. Read Psalm 41 of what God does when you help the poor. And they would like to do more, but they're controlled by money so much. Well, I can't afford to give it up. Man, I got to work all week. And giving is hard. It's hard for some people to give because they're covetous. The devil always tells you that you're not going to make it. Oh, boy, don't do that. That's dumb. Somebody should have told that little widow when she went over to that place where Jesus, can you imagine Jesus sitting by the offering box? I mean, sitting there like this. And there's the box, and he's sitting here like this and watching him come by. Whoo, you'd put that dollar back, wouldn't you, if he was watching? That widow came up and had two little half pennies, or maybe not even a penny, two of them. That's all she had. She put them in there, and Jesus said she gave more than everybody else. Because see, God doesn't look in terms of the volume of money, but what in your heart motivated you to give. And it's hard, I have learned in my life, it's hard for covetous people to give because they live to get it and they have a hard time letting go of it. And one of the things in life that God requires of all of us is on occasion consistently to let go of it. Because if you can let go of it, he can give you more. If you can't let go of it, well, you do your best. Finally, go back to Revelation again. This one's easy. The last one in verse 8. All liars. Does your Bible say liars? All liars. Behind all deception... All deceit and probably all falsehood and untruthfulness is lying. John eight forty four, Jesus said, the father of lies is the devil. So when you lie, you're being provoked by the devil to lie, to misrepresent the truth by denying the truth and telling it your way. Now, I get corrected by my wife all the time for telling stories about our past that I, I haven't got one of them right yet, but I like my version. I just leave out some of the minor details. And, you know, women are so detailed. When you talk to them, it takes them forever to tell a story. I can tell it in three or four seconds. Oh, yeah, we went and got blessed. Woo-wee. But for them, it was another story. I remember I used to call Bonnie when I was on a trip. I'd call home, how the baby's doing. I had to hear about little pink toes and little socks and little waving arms. and all. But women are like that. You got to give them that though. I learned 50 years later, you got to give them that, but that's the way it works. Because you ask us, how's it going? Fine. It's what you do. Lots. Did you have a good time? Pretty good. Are we done? All right. Good. Let's eat. Typical sensitive man. But lying is of the devil. And I want to close with this one. If you look in James chapter 3 and verse 14. James 3 and verse 14. Again, this has to do with our personal relationships with each other here. Quite a thoughtful verse, a stirring verse. James 3 verse 14. But if you have bitter envyings and strife in your hearts, 
Glory not and lie not against the truth. Is it possible to lie against the truth? See, listen, truth is you don't like him. Truth is you don't like her. Truth is you're pretty ticked off about somebody and you're certainly not going to go to them and confess your fault to them. Oh, no, no. This is America. We don't do that. You, You do that in Israel. You don't do that here. Actual fact is, if you take your gift to the altar and there you remember somebody has something against you, you go to them. You go to them. We all probably know somebody like that. I appreciate that. There are people that I know. There's a few, only a few that I know that will come up and, if necessary, confront you. I like that. I do. It lets me know they're thinking about a lot of things they've been taught and want to make sure that we are a brother's keeper. Amen. But he said, if you have bitter envying in your heart, don't lie against the truth because the truth is you got bitter envying in your heart. And when you say, I don't, I don't have a problem with him. Yes, you do. You do, but the very things you gossiped about that person last week, the things you said about them, the feelings you had when you were talking about them. Let me tell you where that feeling comes from in the 15th verse. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual and demonic or devilish for where envying and strife is there is confusion and every evil work would you agree to that of course you would now we're bound by that that's the word of god a common problem when you put people together from different backgrounds and different settings and different areas of the country is there's a difference in the way we do things the way we talk the way we think about things and it's not easy to adjust to that. And sometimes people just don't want to try to adjust to it. They just have their comments and leave them alone. But there's times you have to deal with things. If you're a Christian, you cannot but speak the truth in love to somebody. You're not even fair if you lie to somebody or deceive somebody. You like my dress? And you look at that and say, that's an ugly dress. But now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wisdom doesn't dictate you say that's an ugly dress. It just simply means that you'd say, well, and she gets the message. That's all you have to say. Well, uh, let me see. And you didn't say nothing, but, well, let me see. But you said it. Honey, you like my tie? Oh, that's uh, it's nice. No, it ain't. I remember Mrs. Guthrie one time, I bought a tie. And Mike had a tie. Guthrie, he had, we both had our ties in one, in one sack. And Bonnie and Mrs. Guthrie had gone one way, and Mike and I had gone another way, and we finally met to go home, go back to the room, and, and go out and eat. Looking in the sacks, Mrs. Guthrie looked in the sack. Carolyn, this is about you. Looked in the sack. And she said, oh, whose ties are these? And she picked up mine and said, I hope it's not yours, Mike. And I said, that's my tie. Well, it's not so bad. <laughs> too late, girl, too late. So I came back to Shelbyville and wore it, and somebody said, boy, I like your tie. Thank you. I told her that too. <laughs> Folks, if we have to do anything consistently amongst ourselves, it's to be honest. Speak the truth in love. You don't have to tell everything you know, but you have to use wisdom in telling what you need to tell. And if there's somebody that you see that's overtaken in a fault, what does it say? You who are spiritual, go to that person to restore them. Remember that? Galatians 6? Galatians 6, verse 10. Now, are you overcomers? What's the last thing he said in in verse 8? If we have any of those traits said, we would say that God is not our God and we are not his people because that's not the way his people live. But he ends it by saying, those who do these things shall have their part where? The lake of fire. That is, they will be excluded from heaven and punished forever. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask you to bless your word. The understanding of it, its deepest meaning and your intention. 
to our hearts. I pray that you truly would deliver us all from evil, all of us, that we would have hearts that are open and available for any conviction that you want to put in there, anything that would right our wrongness and put us on a righteous path instead of an unrighteous path, that we would give up all of our excuses, our excuse-making, the justifying of our sins and weaknesses, and we would simply say, let God be God, and let God be true in every man a liar. Help us to live this way, Lord. It's not easy, but it's possible. For we can truly do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We ask you to do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen.